This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. So the founder of Grubhub, the original guy who started the app from his Chicago apartment, just gave us a call. What he thinks about the ethics of what he made on this interview with Device and Virtue. Hey, welcome back to Device and Virtue, where we argue the wrongs and rights of technology and faith in everyday life. We're coming to you from Chicago. I'm Adam. And I'm Chris. Adam, today we are talking about food delivery apps, but don't this, hit stop. It's this not feels the- <laughs> like Groundhog Day, like we're living the same day over Two again. Two episodes in a row on food delivery apps. Why is that again? Yeah, it's because when we were talking about this recently, my friend Mike Evans heard about it and he was on Facebook and he started typing and said, you know, I have something to say about food delivery apps. Wait, but why? Who's Mike Evans? You know, he's the guy that founded Grubhub. He founded Grubhub. Yeah, the actual Grubhub, like the Grubhub like, that everyone like has on the their Like the OG, the original gangster I know. of food delivery apps. No, it's crazy, but... He I, left a message on your Facebook page? I, I happen to know him. He lives in <laughs> Chicago, and I mean, about Grubhub, he founded it all the way from the very beginning, programmed it, took it through all these investing rounds, and led it until like there was an IPO you know, on the stock market. That's fantastic. Yeah, no, he's a really successful guy, both a technology guy and an entrepreneur, but a lot of people don't know this. Also, he's a Christian. And cool. that's how I met him through networking with pastors and other Christians in the city. So he's a really cool, cool guy. And he said, hey, I'd love to come on the podcast and talk about it. I said, great. Absolutely. That sounds awesome. So he talked all about what he thinks about how it's doing, the ethics of how it's impacted the world. I asked him a bunch of good questions, including what he first ordered from Grubhub. So can't really? wait for you to hear it. That's great. And then, of course, uh, you should tell me what you think after. I will absolutely do that. Of course you will. Well, hey, I'm here with Mike Evans, founder or co-founder. Do I call you co-founder of Grubhub, Mike? Yes, co-founder is right. Welcome yep. to Device and Virtue, man. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Doing great. I can't believe that you heard about us doing our food delivery apps, ghost kitchens, and tacos on demand episode and wanted to talk to me about it because, you know, you have a little bit to say about food delivery apps, right? I do. I do. Since I, you know, I, I created Grubhub in my apartment and- In your apartment? Ran it. What, what year was yeah. that? 2000, it was late 2001 uh, and then ran it for 13 years, 12 and a half years through 2014 through the IPO. And it was a lot of things to a lot of different people during that time, really beneficial to a lot of restaurants, really beneficial to a lot of diners, and also is not without its challenges. And so happy to talk about all that stuff. No, Uh, I love it. I'm going to be honest. I used Grubhub this week to order ramen from down the street. I I used Grubhub three times this week. (laughs) Did you? (laughs) What'd you get? What'd you get? I got JB Alberto's pizza. Okay. Nice nice choice. So good. Rogers Park, right? Yeah. No, I love the app. I still use it. I mean, I've used it. 
I don't know, at least 2,000 times over the last 13 years. But then again, you know, I, like I placed the first order. So <laughs> I literally had a head start on everybody else. Do so. you have a story? And what was the first order you placed? Was it pizza? You know, I think it was, I think it was actually like a bagel. Because I think the first <laughs> restaurant I signed up for online ordering was, I think it was BB's Bagels on, on Devon. Oh, wow. Not as inspiring as I thought it'd be to be. <laughs> the I mean, I created the business because I wanted a pizza. So <laughs> I, was I literally was hungry and wanted a yeah. pizza. <laughs> <laughs> Is that really, what was your motivation to create Grubhub? I just told you I wanted a pizza. <laughs> like that was it. There's nothing more fancy than that. I, I mean, calling restaurants stinks. It right. absolutely stinks. You know, prior to Grubhub, think back to think back to the dark ages in like 2000, 2002, right? Before you could order anything <laughs> online. And on Sunday night, everybody's like, we should order pizza. And then everybody sort of does the not it thing. Like they, you know, oh, yeah, I, right. have you ever had the thing where who's going to pray and everybody like puts their finger on their nose and then like the last person. It was the right, same right, thing right. with calling restaurants. Because right, if you right, think totally. about the experience, you call and then they say, hey, this is so-and-so's pizza. Please hold. And then you're on hold. Yeah. And then the back and forth, and they and then they miss something. Then you read a credit card number over the phone. Oh yeah, it's terrible. And and then some some teenager is typically writing that number down on a piece of paper so they can type <laughs> it into a terminal later, which is not like I can tell you is not secure. Yeah, right? yeah, you think. And so it's funny because you know I, I definitely hear people say things like I feel like there's not a connection with the restaurant that I had before, and I'm like, was there really a connection before when you called like and it, like a 16 year old worker who was working for the summer put you on hold for a few minutes and then messed up your order somehow. Like, <laughs> right, do, was right. that a deep personal connection for you that was <laughs> right, replaced? Right. So you were trying to improve just that whole situation, which I think you did. I absolutely think you did. When you look back though, you're looking, I mean, 13 years later, you're saying, so it went mm -hmm. through all these evolutions and you guys merged with seamless and then it, you know, went on the stock exchange and everything. And then you've left that now. You're not, you're not leading it anymore. That's right. Yep. When you look back at just what you've done, how do you think Grubhub has changed the world? So the thing I'm most proud of with the business is, you know, the business started out, we, we signed up independent operated restaurants, not chains, right? Oh, okay. So at the time in 2004, 2005, 2006, when online ordering came out, um, the options for online ordering were Pizza Hut or Domino's or Grubhub, right? We were among the very first. And what we were doing is creating a platform where independent operators could compete with the chains. Yeah, right. And it worked, right? The number of online orders that uh, a mom and pop pizza place would get rivaled or a lot of times exceeded the number of online orders that a Pizza Hut or Domino's would get. And right. it was less cost for them because the operations were so much so much less expensive. It's higher accuracy, so they didn't have as many errors. And so we, we built that from like, you know, the first restaurant I signed up all the way through 40,000 restaurants. And when we hit 40,000 restaurants, the largest chain we had, I think, was like 12 with Leona's Pizza in Chicago. And so if you think about the impact that has for independent entrepreneurs, and then right. um, among that, it was something like 40% of the entrepreneurs were either first or second generation immigrants. Mm -hmm. And so if oh. you think about the impact that that had on them and their families sure. through the housing crisis, it, it, was, it was meaningful. We kept thousands and thousands of restaurants in business through an economic downturn. And to yeah. the point where I was getting flowers from restaurateurs <laughs> at my office, wow. it was it was a beloved service that created a huge economic impact. I don't think it's that anymore, by the way. I don't think it's focused on independent restaurants. And I think that the, the, the take rate, the percentage of the order that we were charging at the time was between anywhere between nine and a half and 12 and a half percent typically. 
it could go a little higher because it's an auction system. And now the take rate's significantly higher, sometimes even triple that. Yeah, which you is, It's very hard right? to have a margin. Yeah. At 30%, these kind of things. Yeah. Again, it's an auction system. So the restaurants can pay less, which is not a thing that gets reported typically. Oh, they just that. get less orders. Yeah. So oh, okay. I think you can get on the platform at 10%, but it doesn't drive nearly as many orders. And so it's the mm-hmm. it's not just the online ordering that costs more. It's the marketing on top of the online ordering that costs more. So you're saying that Grubhub has created a bunch of equity in terms of local restaurants, local businesses being able to get a whole, be on the same playing field as the national chains. Certainly it did through the IPO, right? And I don't see the data now. So I suspect it still does for a lot of restaurants, even right. though the press is largely negative. It, it's not without its problems. That's not what I'm saying. Right. It's right. and but But yeah, given that it's over 80% of the restaurants on there are independent operated. It creates a huge leveling of the playing field against national brands. Now, they also have a national brand strategy now, which they didn't, which we didn't have when I was a part of it. So to the degree to which that's still true, I'm not actually quite sure. DoorDash, at least reportedly, really sort of built its business on going after delivering Chipotle and McDonald's and national brand stuff. Um, which is different than the way you sort of think of as Grubhub, which did have a lot of independent things. And now it seems like everybody is trying to get the whole pie. Yeah, it's good. That's a good pun. <laughs> they are. Everybody <laughs> wants the whole pie. Yeah, I think that, yeah, I have all sorts of theories about why why do- the the door was left open for DoorDash to to compete. But they lar- it largely comes down to price, and the price was largely driven by going public. So that one of the challenges with going from private investors to public investors, the public investors expect growth every quarter. And that growth every quarter drives ever increasing pricing. And since most public investors are short-term thinking, it's totally fine if I own the pro- a stock for a month and the price goes up and I sell it, as opposed to thinking in years, increasing the price to restaurants and therefore driving a stock price drives short-term gains, as opposed to, is this long-term sustainable for the restaurants? And so it's partly the ethics of the company are driven by the ethics of their owners and the ethics of the owners. There are no ethics of the public stock market owner. It is a, the, the public stock market as an aggregate is a short-term thinking narcissist, right? With no driving morals. Wow. Right. 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 So, so you're saying the market doesn't operate with virtue. It operates for profit, essentially. It operates for profit. And there's certainly the, the invisible hand free market thinkers who say that the free market drives ultimately efficiency. And there's some truth to that, but but there's something about the way that's implemented within the American system that it drives short-term profit, not long-term. Sure. And that can be very detrimental to customers of the businesses. You are now older and more, way more experienced than you sitting down and just coding version one of Grubhub, right? I'm I certainly was... older. I, don't, I mean, I, hopefully I've learned something, but I'm unable to judge that objectively about myself. Well, we sit around and think about this a lot. We think about when technologies are created, we wonder if people understand the impacts they'll eventually have. Things that have, you know, sweeping changes the way society works, the way families relate to each other, the way people relate to each other, the way we relate to technologies, these kind of things. Did people know when they created the iPhone that we'd all be walking around with something, you know, a screen in our face and the effects of Facebook? With Grubhub, I wonder as you look back at this and you really launched a whole really a whole category of apps and the way people relate to food, the way people relate to being efficient during their days, maybe the way they even work with their families. When you look back at yourself now and would talk to the guy coding the original version, what did you not know then that you sort of seem to know now?
I, we had a we had a, a sort of a golden rule at Grubhub, which was okay. never release a product unless it makes a restaurant more likely to be in business for a longer period of time. Typically, 25% of restaurants fail every year. And so okay. our golden rule was don't do it unless you're decreasing that number. And that was true for everything we did at the company, that our product had to drive value that made it more likely for the restaurant to continue to survive. Wow. So you were thinking about the end, the impact. Yes. Even and, when you were doing this uh, at the beginning, you were thinking that? That's amazing. Yeah, that was, that's part of just having mission and a purpose in sure within the context of having a business. You know, I, I'm a big proponent these days of impact businesses, and I believe this to an even larger degree than I did before. Businesses that do good do better, right? It, businesses wow. that drive impact drive profit. It's not true for all businesses. Like, I don't know that how you do that with an oil company, but going into the startup world where you think about what business am I going to create, thinking about the business model and the impact that that business model dri drives can't be divorced. We could do a whole other podcast about my current business, which is which is. <laughs> well, yeah, tell, tell us about this. that for a second, just like briefly, like what is that? Yeah, so what I've created now is is called Fixer.com, and we are a an employee based handy person service. And so the idea behind it is the supply of skilled workers is greatly constrained relative to demand because all of the trade schools have closed. Most of the trade schools have closed. Yeah. Okay. And so the the business, which is creating a layer of convenience and bringing it to an app-based form, similar to what we did with Grubhub, in a fragmented marketplace drives massive convenience and value for the customer. But to actually make it work, we have to add more people into the supply of skilled workers. So we opened a training center and we train our we train the fixers from scratch. And so the two things can't be divorced because the macroeconomic conditions don't allow for the convenience to be supplied unless we also work on the supply. So, so you're not. So this is not like Uber drivers who are just driving a gig. They're an no. independent contractor and the driver around. You're hiring people. Training. They're employees of the company with benefits, yeah. with full benefits yeah. and right. guaranteed hours. Super unusual business model right now, right? Yeah, you know it's funny. It is the non-gig economy model is is an unusual model right now. For some reason, everybody decided that that's the way all business had to be. Even though for three thousand years. People just hired employees. But suddenly in the last 15 years, that's gone out of style. It'll come back. It's on the way of coming back right now. So Fixture is still a thing where, I mean, you can order a handy person to your place via an app or on the web, these kind of things, and to get them to fix a door, a faucet or something. Yeah. But you're training people in the process on the other side of the model. Yeah. And the, the thinking behind that is that when we're talking about what a customer needs, right? Let's get back to the food example, right? When, and I said this on, on the Facebook post to you that, that ultimately like a farmer makes it and then a distributor buys it and then it goes to a farm. Right. And restaurants are really just add, adding a layer of convenience and to some degree um, quality by by preparing that food. Sure. And so apps do that on top of restaurants. They add convenience yeah. and quality. Right. Um, if done right, they add quality because you can you can promote the best players in in the marketplace. And in fact, Grubhub does that. It's not purely an auction. The restaurants that have the lowest error rates and the fastest delivery and the hottest food and the best quality are ranked higher than the ones that don't. Interesting. I see. Sure. And so when you add convenience and quality on top of the restaurants, like I think you're doing a real service to the consumers. And that's valuable, right? And so the idea that it's somehow unethical to use the app and and you should go to the to the restaurant directly, I would say, well, if, if that's your belief, then you should go to the farmer directly. Yeah. Right? Like if, if you're going to have that belief, which is totally fine, take it to its logical extreme, like get a CSA, cook all the food yourself. Right. Right. But then you're giving up something. You're giving up, let's say five hours a week that you could right. be spending right. educating your children or volunteering for the community. And so then that trade-off 
the the limited resources of a person's time, which is really what you're getting with convenience, can be used for a variety of other values. That's an ethical choice, right? Like adding convenience to a consumer's life is ultimately giving them the opportunity to use their time in the most advantageous way for their community. So I think actually convenience is ethically something that's valuable to deliver. Great. I get because of my background. (laughs) I'm predisposed to thinking this. Well, no, I love the argument because I was making this argument with Adam on our podcast uh, last week about this, where I was talking about the layers of technology. And I said, he was sort of talking about the divorce between the person and the land and food and things. And I was sort of making this argument about, doesn't it change our time, the ratio of our time? And doesn't that allow us to do other things that are human, maybe play an instrument? So Adam's not here, so he can't argue (laughs) against me. But I'll say this. That's why I'm bringing it up. That (laughs) fight, that fight was lost in 1960s in the okay. 1960s when okay. when instead of buying potatoes you could buy french fries in the freezer section that you put in the oven right the the battle around convenience and being connected to foods was lost decades ago yeah and in fact probably never existed right the when you go all the way back to a point where there wasn't like a mass food distribution system the variety of food that was available was simply regional and it was very low and there were health issues related to that right like it wasn't until trains existed that you could get lettuce in new york city in the middle of the winter because it had to be shipped from california sure so i mean this is in east of eden it's john steinbeck's novel he said like it's one of the major themes in that book they talk about shipping lettuce across the country. I forgot that. That's such a good book. Yeah. And it doesn't work because the ice breaks down. Right. So this idea that we're somehow connected to the food and the land is a movement that's happening now that actually is really valuable, but it's not a thing that actually existed before. We actually spent a lot of time talking last week about the slow food reaction to fast food models. An author who owned two slow food restaurants in New York City wrote that her employees and her would sneak out to go to McDonald's. And what she realized from the slow food movement and farm to table and these kind of things is that it was mostly elite, very high priced, mostly inaccessible. And so she wrote about the mm-hmm. tension between the convenience versus the land thing. It's now it's now a luxury. So this is interesting. One of the things that came up in the Grubhub experiences is in, in the 2008 to 2012 timeframe, there was a lot being written about food deserts. And we thought right. a lot about, are we creating... Because, because Grubhub, from, from a price point perspective, is a very low price point compared to, say, Open Table and sure. going to like a white linen restaurant. And so right. if you can deliver high quality food and you can, and we would do this, like we would really strongly encourage adding salads to a pizza restaurant's menu so that every restaurant had a healthy option in it. Okay. Right. And so, and a lot of that, a lot of that push came out of the conversation around food deserts in that time frame. So you can like... I was in this place where I could actually influence, like, it was weird. It was, it's kind of heady, but like I could influence food choices across a national scale by simply making availability a thing. And so like access to healthy food was a, was a big issue at the company. Hey, I want to ask you this. I've asked you this before, but you've been a little bit reticent to talk about it. But I just want to ask you: you're known as the <laughs> no, you're you're. What are you doing as, to me? You're gonna get you gonna gotcha? I don't. I really don't. You're known as the you know a tech founder, an entrepreneur, but you are a Christian. I I think I met you originally through friends like where you were in the same church, and near the same neighborhood, and so. I don't think you like to speak for Christianity, but at the same time, your faith has influenced what you do. I'm sure, and so. For what we're doing, we're always trying to think about how does being a Christian affect the way we think about technologies or even starting businesses? How has it affected you? It's a fundamental part of my nature. So when I talk about 
Grow up, right? And my current company, when I talk about what our mission is as a, as a company, you know, even when I think all the way back to the first conversation we had where we defined our values as a company at Grubhub, mm-hmm. respect and honesty, and there was a few others. Mm-hmm. And we had a meeting, it was like an offsite where we all went out, out, off and said, what are the values we all care about as a group? We all come from different creeds, we come from different backgrounds, different religions, or no religion or whatever, whatever you believe. Like, but what can we agree on as a group? and move forward on. And the things that I was bringing to the table in terms of the values I thought were important were, were largely influenced by my faith, integrity, respect, and honesty. Mm-hmm. Those conversations were really important. And even as we were building the culture, one of the rules that I've always had is you want to have people who that you can agree with, but that are not carbon copies of yourself and stretch you in uncomfortable ways. Right. Okay. And, and that, and that as a virtue, by virtue of that fact has led me to a lot of interfaith conversations and continues to be a driving force of interfaith conversations for me today. But certainly, I'd say that the the transition from leaving the one company, Grubhub, to starting a new company, the parable that had the biggest impact on me was the one about the talents, right? Because mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, I have all these resources. I have the dollars that I made from Grubhub, and I've got the relationships I made with other people, and I have the investor relationships, and I have everything I learned so to like, do I bury all that in the ground and say good enough? Or like, do I have to reinvest it? And oh. that parable has some pretty clear implications about, about what the right path is, which is don't bury it in the ground, go use it. And <laughs> right. so I, that was a motivating factor. I mean, it was probably the primary motivating factor for me, like going back to work and trying to create social change through business in the second business. That's amazing. To whom much is given, uh, much is required, it sounds like. Also, I can't take it with me. Right. I mean, I, I'm not that old yet. I'm still early 40s. And so it felt way too early to just be resting on my laurels. There's something that happens, and, and this has been spoken about in many sermons, you know, when something terrible happens and a, a close family member dies of a ter- terrible disease, the, na- the human nature's response is to say, why me? But, you know, as Christians, our response is supposed to be, what now? Right. Because, because why me, God, doesn't have an answer. That, that's most of the point of Job, right? The whole book. But what now is a really important question to ask. Yeah. And the answer to that is really important to get right or to, to explore on an ongoing way. But the same thing is true with blessing. You know, a lot of people say, why me? And the answer is because I, because I did it. I pulled myself by my own bootstraps. But that, yes. that yeah. question actually doesn't have an answer either, the why me. The what now does have an answer, and that is is to take that blessing and then to bless others with it. So anyway, and now we just got real, got deep. I love it. (laughs) I love it. I really appreciate it, actually. It's really good. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and County, a bounty hunter's journey to faith Hope and Redemption, written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. So Adam, what did you think? <laughs> wow. I I mean, Chris, that was a great interview. Thanks to Mike 
for doing it. Yeah, and it was awesome. He, no pun intended, he he dropped the mic at the end of that. <laughs> like literally, I I feel like whatever we say from here on out, you could quit at this point because that was the best part of this whole episode. Not, not why me, but what now? Yeah. And not just with suffering, but also with blessing. Yeah, with blessing. I mean, I don't think he would say it, but you know, when he... I, and I, he's never told me specifically, but when he left Grubhub, I mean, he made a lot of money, right? Yeah. He has like, yeah, he's he... taken care of in a way financially, probably that most of us aren't. Right. And I love that as a Christian, he was saying, well, my obligation there is to say, what now? And that's yeah. why, almost why he was starting a new company yeah. that helps people instead yeah. of just like, honestly, uh, sorry, Mike, he has a sailboat. I know he does. <laughs> he like can like sail yeah. in like Michigan. I think he could probably do that the rest of his life if he wanted to. And instead he's doing this. Right. Yeah. So I actually want to hear what your sort of reactions are. You've now heard the whole interview. What, yeah. have, what have you got? Yeah. Okay. I think I have like four things okay. that we have to talk about from this okay. interview. Sweet. Let's do it. The first, I, I was really intrigued just by his discussion around the business model itself and the dynamics of being privately owned versus publicly owned. Right. And, and how that drives the value system that... Grubhub has had over the course of the last 20 oh, years. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He had that, what he had said something about the stock market, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I wrote it down. He, he said, the public stock market in aggregate, in total, is a short term thinking narcissist. <laughs> <laughs> so he didn't point any punches there. <laughs> yeah, didn't point punches. So that's a really interesting observation. Maybe there's people who would take issue with it, but it's quarter over quarter growth mm -hmm. at all cost, right? Almost. Right. right. And how that changes what you have to do to make that happen. He and his partner seem to have like this really big vision about supporting independent restaurateurs. Yeah, he I loved that. He discussed that a lot at the beginning. Yeah. Like, my whole goal was to like help make a bit like a level playing field yeah. for independent business. I think that's great. And that's as owners they're able to make that happen. And now like perhaps unless you have a strong vision that you can cast to the investors as well, you are subject to their demand for quarter over quarter growth. So this is an interesting question from the technology determinism side. Yeah. <laughs> you know absolutely. what I'm saying? Because we, you know, we've had an episode on this, you know, does technology control history or does the history culture technology and for technological determinism sort of sees the technology as the driver of what's happening. You know, Grubhub got invented. It's a food delivery app that changes the whole environment. It makes everyone think differently about food, about life, yeah. about like, and we think about all these invisible effects, Right, right, right. but you know, there is a, some counter thoughts out there. And one of them is that, you know, economics is another one of these huge things, not just technology. Right. And this is an example of he's explaining the both together so that the stock market kit, he said, changed what Grubhub was trying to do for 12 years. Right. I, that makes sense to me that in the, at least in the short term, what I'm not sure about is if that's the big effect. Like I get Mike was saying like, oh, this really affects like Grubhub isn't doing as good a job at supporting small businesses now. I mean, he didn't maybe right. say that straight right. out. Maybe that's my interpretation, but you know, he was sort of saying they're doing more big brands now and we're charging a lot more, yeah. you know, for yeah. like or the yeah. subcharges, you know, he's not in charge of the company anymore. But I go like that stuff might be the red meat that McLuhan talks about. Like those are, those are big effects. Those are social effects mm -hmm. that I care about ethically as a Christian. But at the end of the day in 30 years, are we going to say that's the effect of the technology on the environment, you know, or yeah. is the, yeah, yeah, yeah. or is Mike concerned about that? Rightly concerned about that. But the real effect is a complete difference in the way we think about food. Do you know what I'm saying? Like I, that, do the economics, maybe it's a short-term push, but it might only be a short-term effect as well. Sure. Like maybe the big-term effect is the whole app. Yeah. 
So <laughs> I think there's multiple effects, right? But here's what I think is interesting. We've talked about this in other episodes, the way that technology is often used to advantage people on the margins and help them. And it gains credence and it gains viability and support because it's helping someone on the margin. So for example, okay. the typewriter was created to help blind people and a lot of people and, and people sure. were like, yay, sure. let's, let's create this. And now everybody uses. And Alexander Graham Bell famously had a deaf wife and was right. creating things that were yeah. hearing. Okay. And, and it gains, it gains support for that reason. Grubhub gains support because it's helping the people who aren't the big chains. But then eventually it gets adopted because it's seen as for all the power it can wield. And suddenly totally. now all the chains are adopting it. In the end, who's going to win? Will it continue? Will it actually crush out the people that it was intended to help? Yeah. And, and that's not necessarily the case, but it'll probably... The, the playing field today in 2020 yeah. with franchise apps and uh, mom and pop shops is probably equivalent to what it was maybe before. Grubhub? I don't know. That, I'm just speculating, totally. but I, I'm just recognizing that that dynamic yeah, yeah, yeah. is there. Yeah, no, it's good. I love it. So the the second thing I want to say is something you kind of brought up around this idea that everybody, DoorDash, Grubhub, all the rest, want the whole pie, <laughs> right? Can I just admit something to you? What? That was an unintentional pun. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the best kind. And then Mike was like, good pun. <laughs> I thought, oh, that was a good pun. See? <laughs> People who make puns appreciate good puns. I can't puns. stand you. I mean them. <laughs> I know, I know. I think that's an interesting dynamic today. Everybody wants a monopoly. And that's always been something in the past 150 years, the, the notion of monopoly has had antitrust to sort of work against it. But now that was sort of in a pipeline economy where you pushed some you pushed a product through a supply chain and it came to an end user and that was the end of the product. Okay. But now we're in a sure. in a platform economy with all these different platforms, these different technologies that are connecting groups of people and so they're they're in a network. So you have the supplier, the restaurants, right. and you have the customer and they're connecting on this platform mm -hmm. and, and this platform mm -hmm. is like a mall you know and yeah. everybody's coming to the mall but the person owns the platform and they they have what's called the network effect which is everybody benefits when there's more people on the network so yeah, right, facebook right, right. runs the world because right. everybody's on facebook right and if another social network that pops up that has oh we have a cool new feature it doesn't really work just based on the features because the right. network is what's yeah. the value to yeah. that and so people exactly. stay where that is yeah the value is the number of people that are on it right and so this idea of them wanting the whole pie it makes a lot of sense because i as a customer i want to be able to order from anyone on the one app. Right. I don't want to have to change apps to, right. oh, I need to use DoorDash for this or I can use Grubhub for that. Right. You know, we just want the convenience of one one right. app to rule them all. Right, right, right. I don't think legislatively we've figured out what to do with it yet. <laughs> wow, you're going after some stuff here. Yeah, because honestly, it's inconvenient when things are all divided between different platforms. I mean, yeah. I don't know if you've ever tried to launch into a food order through Google Maps, which is a lot of times how I'll start. Like I'll like just mm, click mm -hmm. the restaurant on Google Maps and then like you can press a place and order button right on Google Maps. Right. And then it jumps up sometimes a choice. Do you want to use Seamless? 
DoorDash, <laughs> Grubhub, and then like three other brands that I could barely even, like Postmates <laughs> was around for a while. I'm like, I don't know. I don't care. Like which one of them do I have a login to? Right. And then also like the reverse of what you're saying, if I jump on Grubhub, I sort of want to see all the choices. I don't want to mm-hmm. have to switch platforms, have 10 different logins. It's just not consumer convenient. Right. On a platform, it is convenient for everyone to be in the same space. Like in this, it's a marketplace. Yeah. We want all the stores in the marketplace. You don't want right. the store outside the mall that you have to walk across the parking lot to get right. to. They're not in an advantaged position. So I agree with the economic regulation and this is not the typical <laughs> stuff we talk about. It's not, but, but, but I think it's helpful. I, I think going back to what you right, were saying right, about right. earlier about the economic impact that it has on technology sure. and how technology is shaped in response to that economic system as well right but we need large forces like governments and legislative bodies to actually decide and regulate for society how a platform is going to function in in our society i think that's good to think about because platforms themselves don't work exactly the same way like as a market does on a main street where all these little stores are really the platform is the street yeah. Uh, and a main yeah, yeah, street. Yeah. Like, and the government provided that street. So it's right. equal access. I was walking on the sidewalk, walking on the street. I yeah. can walk into any of the doors I want and buy something. And that's the platform. If we have a platform like Facebook, a platform like Grubhub, what's causing that not to go really unethical? Mm-hmm. And so I agree. That's good. Oh, man, Graver. Good points. I mean, don't write that down or anything. <laughs> We're keeping that in the record. Okay, number three. So... Mike talked about how it sounds like they've gotten some criticism from people arguing that using the app is unethical. And he sort of makes this argument then that like, okay. Like you maybe. (laughs) Like last time. Okay. Maybe, maybe, maybe. (laughs) That, okay, let's just say it's me. That I would need to take it to its logical extreme and go to the farmer for the the food that I'm getting. Yeah, because he was talking about all these layers of convenience. Like, right. the, there's you know, a, grow your own food or there's chain. a farmer and go to the farmer or there's in a restaurant as another layer of convenience and maybe even adds quality because they're preparing that food for you. Sure. And then an app sure. is a, a, get another layer and yeah. even mentioned that it could add quality because they yes. actually help their algorithm. By the way, I noticed this. <laughs> he said their algorithm sorts for restaurants that are delivering faster have higher quality food yeah and i understand what he's saying and i do think it's adding quality and convenience i'm not going to argue with that he kind of goes on to say like this convenience allows people to have more time to do things like educate their kids or volunteer in their community i love this because i literally had made that same point with you that's great i hear that and i say yeah, they have five more hours probably to watch TikTok. Oh my gosh. But I think I think there is this question of now it's suddenly become a choice where it wasn't a choice before. And he's saying we're taking work off of their plate so they don't have to cook so that they can go do good things for other people. When I'm saying mm-hmm. like cooking is doing good for people, just because we're obligated to do it doesn't make it a bad thing. And mm-hmm. the idea that we're taking the work and we're making it optional, that when I choose it, that somehow makes it better. 
Okay, okay. Yeah, I mean, I prefer to be compulsorily invited to the barn raising so that I'm required <laughs> to press up the walls with everybody else. Yeah, I mean, he wasn't saying that, but no, you're but, drawing the inference. But, but but he wants me to take my thing to the logical extreme. And sure, I think I think sure. what, what the app does is it creates this convenience and an option to choose what I do with my free time, sure. which I totally get. And right. I, I think that is a good thing in and of itself. But I question the likelihood that we're going to use it for good ends when in reality sometimes the obligations we have to work are actually good ends in and of themselves and we don't just because we are forced to choose them doesn't make them bad you know it's just gonna roll my eyes but i might agree (laughs) there's something about responsibility that can create an ethical or a good response like a parent who suddenly sees their child and is exhausted, but knows they need to care for that kid and like right. turns and like loves them and cares for them. The responsibility provides an opportunity to do good when it might not have been. In some ways it creates an internal guilt when I choose to watch TikTok rather than volunteer in the community. Okay, again, you're confusing the podcast with your therapy session. And so I want you to like sort of... <laughs> that's fair, that's fair. Thanks, <laughs> but, for, <laughs> thanks for letting me emote. <laughs> I, I guess so. I loved the choice point and I don't think it was about choice, but you, I think you're right to bring that up. But I do think it's about the historical shifting of where those responsibilities fall for humans. And it's the washing machine problem. Like if I had to hand wash my clothes every time without the automatic washing machine, that creates quite a lot of time. Right. Now that I have an automatic washing machine, I maybe can write poetry, but I could also work in the clothing shelter to hand out things to homeless folks. And maybe that seems like a voluntary thing, but maybe that was an obligation or a call in my life mm-hmm. originally that now I'm leaning into because yeah. the scriptures certainly calls me to care for the outcast. So I will counter your point by saying that the choice allows me to possibly to lean into a different responsibility or Carl in my life. And I hear that. I'm just, I think I'm more skeptical about human nature and I'm I'm less optimistic that given the choice, I'm going to choose volunteering in my community over watching TikTok videos. Okay. The other thing I want to bring up is number four is, and, and he kind of pointed this out. I mean, Hundreds of years ago, we were directly connected to our food. But today, the supply chain is such that it makes that opaque. And we know that we're blind to the ways that our food comes to us and the ethical problems for both animals and workers in the food getting to us. I think the challenge with the app is that the app has created another layer of blinders to the people that are preparing our food and serving our food. I'm not saying apps are bad. I'm just saying they've created another layer that we have to be accountable for. And we have to think about the people who are, who are making and serving the food. And we have to be aware to treat them ethically along that whole supply chain. I feel like I've gotten new inspiration for a new business. You ready for it? Fair trade Grubhub. (laughs) Fair trade. (laughs) (laughs) It's a food delivery app, but it has a fair trade label on it. So I can know that it's been ethically sourced. And (laughs) why not? I mean, it it would be an angle for a business to take. Right. And he he even said said that businesses that do good, do better. Yeah. yeah, And and he was very much about that. And I I support that. And I'm really behind that. And I think it's great. Even that fixer, fixer.com, the new company that he started, 
it was all about that too. Training workers and treating them in a respectful way that takes care of them while they train. Yeah. yeah. I think Mike's absolutely right. Being ethically responsible for the workers, because all of a sudden we have ghost kitchens as an unexpected consequence of this. And you're saying people become actual ghosts. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It makes me think of the prayer that always gets prayed before meals of bless this food and bless the hands that prepared it. Oh yeah. It's good. There's a whole lot more hands. Yeah. Including the Grubhub delivery driver. Yeah. Which we hope has used hand sanitizer. COVID <laughs> joke. Sorry. They never land. <clears throat> and maybe we, when we pray the bless the hands that prepared it, that's a moment for us to be thinking about the entire chain of humans that yeah. gave us our daily bread. Thanks to Mike Evans. That was a great conversation with Chris. And yeah, it was, it was awesome. And yeah, if you want to check out Mike Evans, you can go to mikeevans.com. Yeah, he's got that new book coming up, writing about his whole experience with Grubhub. So that'll be awesome. Yeah. And uh, I think we have one last clip, right? Oh, yeah. Of course, I asked them about Vice or Virtue. Well, hey, we end every one of our episodes with a little segment we call Vice or Virtue. And we bring up an unexpected technology and just off the cuff, we have to decide whether it's a vice or a virtue. And I say unexpected technologies because there's a lot of technologies today that we don't think of as technologies, but they surround us and we don't even notice them. And that's one of our points. So I want to give you our vice or virtue of the day and you can just react and tell me <laughs> if you think it's a vice or Am virtue. Am I just supposed to say one word or so that, can I wax say, philosophical? Say, you have to say either vice or virtue and then you can tell me why you think so, okay? Right. You ready for it? Lay it on me. Corrugated cardboard. Virtue. <laughs> virtue. Why? Virtue. Well, first of all, I'm going to say virtue to any technology. I'm a techno <laughs> technophile. But <laughs> virtue because the the structural strength of it relative to just paper or plastic or wood is very high compared to the amount of material that you need. It's highly recyclable. The energy that you need to create it and the energy you can you can capture by recycling it are all like among the very best among all sort of shipping structures that you could use. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Do you know why we thought of it when it comes to food delivery? Because <laughs> everything shows up in styrofoam and plastic and it's horrible. That's why. <laughs> pizza boxes are great. Actually, yeah, pizza yeah. boxes are hard to recycle though. You have the grease issue. Yeah, we had a whole program we did with Grubhub where we were trying to get compostables into the hands of restaurants and they just wouldn't. Really? They just really? didn't care. And so branded organic material, compostable, like hot and kept things as hot. The hot containers never kept things as hot as yeah. plastic. It was hard because that's the kind of thing that's driven by consumer choice. And it's the kind of thing consumers say they want, but then won't pay Sometimes for Sometimes changing the right and wrongs of something means the whole crowd has to change. And that's, that's a big game. So corrugated, <laughs> corrugated paper. Did you think I'd have such strong opinions on oh, it? I, I was positive you would have an opinion on it. <laughs> I have strong opinions on everything. It's easy. So. Oh, also one last thing. Uh, I do have a book coming out called Hangry. It's my memoir about founding the company. Yeah, I love that and name. what happened it's as great. a- Hangry? <laughs> Uh, thank you. Okay. Yeah, it's what happened as I founded the company and then as it grew sort of beyond my control and how I, I became frustrated with that. Um, and then what I did to recover from that. And so if you said you can you can send an email to preorder at mikeevans.com and I'll get you the link as soon as I have the Yeah, when we link. get that, we can, we'll, we'll be sure to post it on deviceandvirtue.com. So sweet. Sweet. Mike, thanks for like uh, jumping on the podcast. Thanks for telling us about some of your experience founding Grubhub, some of what it means to be a Christian sort of in technology today. Yep. Happy to be here. Awesome. Thanks for having me.
This episode was brought to you in part by the Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.